Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, just moments ago, our Discord was saying that we should be the ones to host Jeopardy. What do you think? Well, it can't be any worse than that one guy who apparently plotted and harassed his way to the top, so. <laughs> I think we'd be a slight improvement to that, so I, I like to think so anyway. I think Aaron Rodgers should be the new host of Jeopardy so that he won't be the Packers quarterback anymore. <laughs> he can't be both, you mean? <laughs> yeah, no. No, just be the Jeopardy. Or else LeVar Burton. He has those wonderful eyes. So sparkly. <laughs> yeah, some people were saying LeVar didn't do so well, but I think with a little practice, he'd be fine. No, it was Mike Richards was totally sabotaging him. That's what it was. Ah, okay. See, so I, I haven't dug into the drama yet, but... Because like Mike Richards was the executive producer, you see. And mm-hmm. so there was speculation that he was basically rigging the game ah. to be able to be the host of Jeopardy. Oh, ooh, drama and intrigue. Jeopardy spy, uh, drama. I love it. <laughs> Jeopardy drama. I'm sure there's a ton of it. My mom has auditioned for Jeopardy a few times, and uh, she's gotten quite like close in the finals and stuff like that. But it's uh, it's a real song and dance to get in on that show. I bet I could do okay on Jeopardy. The problem is that I'm very specialized in the various uh, categories that I know. So I could do really well in sports or history or video games, but other ones are a little little dicier, I think. Yeah, same here. I'm very specialized. But um, if you give me like a topic on like, I don't know, cats and video games, I'd clean up real fast. Oh, yeah. No, just give me the right topic and then just let me go down. Maybe hit the daily double. Always bet everything on the Daily Double. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can do it, Kat. I I believe in you. Well, we're not going to be talking about Jeopardy this week, unfortunately. Instead, Uh, we're going to do something a little different. So as you may know, we have the Pantheon of the Blood God series. It's the monthly podcast in which we explore the very best games of all time, specifically RPGs. We're going to do a Pantheon mini. This would be the RPG that maybe doesn't really deserve to be given the full pantheon treatment but nevertheless deserves to be remembered maybe get its own episode and this week we're gonna do our first pantheon mini (laughs) on lord of the rings the third age a game that by no stretch deserves to be in the pantheon but is a very interesting curiosity and it's a perfect way to wrap up the summer of the rings nadia i think so and gosh just it's such a middle of the road game that still has some very interesting quirks to it so it is worth talking about it's one of the very few Lord of the Rings games by EA, which frankly weren't very good that anybody even remembers. Yeah, EA kind of had the license back then, didn't they? They had two towers, they had Return of the King, and they finally brought out um, kind of as a conclusion, uh, the Third Age. They also had the Harry Potter license, and they were bad at that too. <laughs> they were they weren't very good at Harry Pottering in, and I always thought the Harry Potter franchise was very interesting in video games because it was such a long-lived franchise that it started with like the Game Boy Color and went all the way up. It's still going, of course, and it's going all the way up to like, you know, AAA uh, next-gen systems and whatnot. But to think back on those first kind of clumsy first Harry Potter games on like the GBC, yeah, those were good times. I think there was a Chamber of Secrets action RPG, maybe, that was isometric on the GBA. That sounds familiar. Yeah, there was a lot going on, especially on the handhelds, just kind of throwaway games that they knew that, I don't know, some kid would buy before they went on a long trip or something like that. We won't really touch on it, but there was also a 
uh, Lord of the Rings, the third age for the GBA. And it was a fire emblems, like tactics game. Can you believe really? that? Yeah. That would have been interesting. Did you ever play it? I didn't. It looked pretty bad, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my surprise. Whoop. It was quite simple, all things considered. They were trying to get the various people on board. I read the reviews for it. Uh, sounded like your typical kind of uh, licensed game, but it was a clone of a more successful and established game. It had these really ugly 2.5D graphics on the GBA. It's not a big There game. was a, a lot of that going around at the time because I remember for GamePro, yes, that GamePro, I reviewed uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. And that suffered from the same problem as the Third Age, which we'll get into, in that, yes, they wanted, it was an RPG, absolutely, uh, turn-based, you know, all that stuff, random encounters, but they wanted everyone in and make it accessible as possible. So you had a really, really dumbed-down RPG, and again, Third Age, as we'll get into, sort of had that problem as well. Well, we will get to the rest of our conversation soon, as well as all the news and what we've been playing. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy the show, follow us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And the Acts of the Blood God Twitter is Blood God Pod. We have a lot of other bonus episodes. We have Charlene Dropouts. Episode two is now out. We have our Summer of the Rings exploration of the Lord of the Rings trilogy or specifically the Hobbit trilogy in this case, that is now available to our $5 listeners. And we will have the Pantheon of the Blood God exploration of Disco Elysium first week of September. And it won't be long, Nadia, before we release the four candidates for the game that we're going to pick for September. What will be the theme? Guess we'll find out soon. Time sure is going by very fast. I'm uncomfortable with how quickly the summer went by. I didn't really do anything interesting. What are you talking about? We talked about the Lord of the Rings all summer. (laughs) Had a great time. We talked about hobbits adventuring in the great outdoors while I stayed indoors most of the time. You're not wrong, though. The summer did go by really fast. Mostly the summer was a progressive degradation of like, well, everything's going to be all right to, well, COVID. Kind of a repeat of last year, if you ask me. Uh, not a repeat of uh, wanted. I never thought things would be all right last summer. By the time June rolled around, I was like, oh, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at least we could talk about video games. At least we can talk about video games. And let's do that right now, Nadia. So I'm curious, as always, what is the sacrifice that you are making to the Blood God? What RPG are you bringing to our Dark Master? I picked up something real weird. I picked up uh, Trigger Witch, which is a dual shooter, dual stick shooter that is kind of set in a Zelda like environment where you mow down enemies with guns. Of course, you're a witch who has guns and your whole clan worships guns. It's really strange. And you go through puzzles and and flip switches with your guns. And it's uh, very odd, but very compelling in a rough way you know how you get those those indie games that are obviously kind of a b but a really fun b and you can't really turn your back on it because you're just something about it feels all right and you enjoy it that's what i'm playing right now yeah i'm playing something similar myself i'm playing a very b indie but i'll get to it in a second is does trigger witch have any relation to bullet witch no i have heard that bullet witch absolutely sucks and it's not it's not that yes Everybody re- fondly remembers the Taro, the Yoko Taro games, 
but they were made by the same developer that did Bullet Witch. And by and large, they were not good. Rest in peace. <laughs> no, I, I have heard the rumors, but this is a very, no, this is very different. This is very different. Oh, excellent. How did you discover this and what platform is it on? Well, I have it on Switch. It's on several platforms. It's on Xbox. I think it's on PlayStation as well. Uh, it's funny. I uh, sometimes listen to the uh, CU podcast uh, by with uh, Pat Contry and uh, Ian, and they were just talking about it. And I said, that sounds really weird and stupid. And I've always did like a good dual stick shooter. So I figured, why the heck not? And I went for it. Trigger Witch is a very naughty sounding game, gotta say. I mean, it's just like a bunch of witches who worship, like they've lost the ways of magic because they're too busy worshiping guns. It's like that... <laughs> What was that movie, the really weird one with the floating head? I don't remember, but it's something that like really that. really weird one with the floating head. <laughs> Someone will know what I'm talking about with a gun. Star is Fox. That, <laughs> I would like to see that property crossover with Star Fox. Holy crap. Ghostbusters 2. That would be a real acid trip. Well, Nadia, I've been playing a whole bunch of games, actually. It's been kind of a grab bag for me. So first of all, if you like sports, I reviewed Madden 22. You can go find my review over at IGN.com. I give it a oh. 6 out of 10. Oh, dear. Same old Madden. Oh, so it's the same same old Madden, same old Madden. Not much you can say. Not much that I can say about that one, really. I was a little sad because all I really want to do is play some ranked games with the Vikings, but it doesn't really feel like there's a point, and I wish it would take a page from Pokemon Unite and have like a, a battle pass where I can unlock clothes and everything for my avatar, win some ranks, go up to ultra two rank or whatever. But no, the ranking system is the same one they've had for 10 years now. It's stupid. That is disappointing. When you're bypassed by Pokemon, you should probably look at updating your, your mechanics a little bit. Well, you know, you can't have a good ranking system because otherwise people wouldn't play Madden Ultimate Team. You got to go sell those card packs. Oh, okay. That explains a lot. Heesh, that sucks. Uh, as for games that our audience would actually care about, I actually have one that you would maybe like, Nadia. Okay. Mm. Uh, so I alluded to it last week, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to play it. But Reb, my my coworker, Rebecca Valentine, who's also been on this show, kind of turned me around on it. She was like, no, no, you got to play this game. And then she showed me this picture of a very hot lady who is in this <laughs> game. I was like, I'm paying attention now. I'm listening. It's called Boyfriend Dungeon. Oh, and it's yes. About you, you play as a boy or girl or non-binary person who goes to a town where seemingly everybody is very horny and very <laughs> into you all the time. And the second you meet people, they start texting you and be like, "Hey, I want to go on a date. I'm totally into you." And <laughs> you're like going, oh, "This is very uncomfortable. People are throwing themselves at me." <laughs> I have a friend who is actually like just uh, they're absolutely mad about Boyfriend Dungeon. So I've been hearing about it myself. It's very horny Tumblr fan fiction in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sure sounds like it when you get to the point where dating games are like, hey, now you can date birds. Now you can date swords. Why the hell not? Why stop there? Just keep on going, developers. Yeah, they turn into swords. You take them into a dungeon, which is a mall. Which is full of your insecurities, like you're fighting cell phones and TVs that zap at you and everything. And you're you're just trying to get as far as possible. And the further you get, you discover new swords that you can potentially date. This is where I found my sword girlfriend. And you can also get crafting materials to craft items to gift to them. It has this very kind of very simplistic mobile game look to it, which is like, whatever. But it's cute. You know, the art, the art is very good. And there are. And honestly, the game itself can be consistently very hot. 
where I'm mm-hmm. going, whoa, man, like, this is a lot. Okay. Like, the, the guy with the leather jacket and no shirt underneath who has the, the dance party who everybody says is a bad boy, I'm like, I don't know. I'm kind of into you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the bad boy cat. You're supposed to stay away from him. But then his club owner girl, uh, his club owner partner comes up to me and she's like, oh, don't trust him. Like, he'll take advantage of you. And then she gives me like a peck on the cheek. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> Here's that the thing, like, though. That sounds like a hot mess. There's a lot of discourse around this game because they didn't do a really good job of explaining their content warning that there were some like really uncomfortable moments. And at the time, I was like, I don't know. Are people overreacting? And honestly, I can kind of see why people are reacting because there's this character named Eric who's kind of a creep. And I mm-hmm. wish he would leave me alone, but he will not leave me alone, no matter how many times I tell him to kind of buzz off, right, in my texts. And it's actually producing that kind of fight or flight instinct that a lot of women can maybe relate to mm-hmm, when dealing mm-hmm. with guys who are getting a little too creepy or not creepy, but just a little too close or, or doing that thing. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, how long do you deal with that when you're a woman? Like uh, I say it started when I was like eight years old, <laughs> basically. Yeah. That moment where you're going, oh, oh, this is really uncomfortable and I want to try and get away from it as fast as possible, except I'm playing a video game and I can't get away from it. Cool. So, can't you like uh, romance a sword and that sword can turn back into a sword and stab the, the guy for you? <laughs> the thing is, apparently you have to go through this whole story to get the full story. Like it's not skippable mm. content, which is like... I just want to date the sword girl, okay? I don't want to yeah. deal with these dudes. That, But the game's like, no, you have to deal with them. I'm like, uh, okay, uh, do I have okay. to? I stab him in the back. There, yeah. dealt with. That's Boyfriend Dungeon. I did a really great job of sell- <laughs> selling it to you, Nadia. But you might be into it. You should give it a shot at least. It's on Game oh, Pass. Heck, I might. Oh, you can't go wrong there. I mean, we got Game yeah. Pass, so why the hell not? I'm also playing Disco Elysium. quite into it, actually, at the moment. Awesome. Yeah, I need to start my game. Nadia, play the dang Disco Elysium so we can talk about it. Got it like no, a week. I will be. Yeah, don't worry. I'm uh, I'm buckling down this week. Nadia, seriously, it's a game that you have to like really experience. I think to like really get a good feel for it. No, you got. I, I totally agree. That's why I'm doing it. It's really fascinating uh, navigating this world. I. So there's a monthly game club going on over on the Discord that's been really good, and somebody. <laughs> So that there are some conversation trees in this game that could be described as it's a trap. Like you just start going down. You're like, oh, God, back up, back up, back up, because you're about to make some choices in your conversations that are really bad. You don't want to do that. Yeah. You mentioned you did that last week and you made a, a couple of bad decisions and went down a really yeah. awful road. Even I was worried about my to. character becoming quite sexist, honestly. That's right. Yeah. Oh, no, I made a sexist Nazi again. All right. So start again. There are a lot of really interesting characters pop throughout and the voice acting. It could be variable, but by and large, it's excellent and adds a ton of flavor to it. And I think adding the voice acting really helped with the director's cut. And beyond that, it's quite a beautiful game. I still don't like playing like this complete disaster of a human being because i don't relate to them at all and i guess i'm the voice in their head that's always trying to tell them to be you know be better please for the love of god be better (laughs) but are you like uh bart simpson when he got that note from uh his mom and his lunch saying 
be good for the love of God, please yes, be good. <laughs> that's exactly how I'm being. Yes. And you can dress them up. And the way you dress them it kind of impacts how people receive you. So he's wearing glasses now and he has a, a police cape. So he's looking a little more respectable now. At least he's wearing clothes. I keep putting points into logic. So I'm afraid he's going to become a total logic lord at some point. And then it's going to be like, uh, it's going to become obnoxious. So he's going to be actually in you like with every step of the way. Like, yeah, no, nice, exactly. Nice be like, uh, no, I'm already getting the voice in my head that's going, actually. So <laughs> when I first played Red Dead Redemption 2, like I, everything in my head was, was narrated by Arthur Morgan for a time. Oh, really? Yeah, it was actually pretty funny. Tahiti. Tahiti. <laughs> I will never get tired of that. Probably because he was so worn out and tired. Someone I know said, like, I didn't, someone said, I didn't like Red Dead Redemption 2, but I could relate to Arthur because he's so tired and people keep asking him to do things. But Disco Elysium is basically a point and click adventure game with heavy RPG elements and some serious, serious rabbit holes to go down in terms mm -hmm. of text. So please enjoy it, Nadia. I will. And finally, I've been playing Fuga Melodies of Steel on my Nintendo Switch, which is the B RPG that I kind of mentioned, which I would describe as Valkyria Chronicles, only you're in, everybody is living inside the tank that is from Metal Slug that's really big. And it's a tactics game, and also they're furries. That's, uh, how did you come by this exactly? Somebody in the Discord recommended it to me. Oh, really? Yeah, they were How like, hey, Kat, did you see this? And I'm like, oh, my God, the algorithm has found me. <laughs> the algorithm titled cat.bat or whatever. They were the like, well, let's make a game for Cat. <laughs> okay, we'll have a giant tank battle cruiser thing, and there will be a bunch of anime furries living inside it, and it's going to basically be Valkyria Chronicles. Go. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool, actually. How is it? Yeah. No, it's pretty good. You know, like it's obviously made on a budget, but I think the it's because the cutscenes, such as they are, are often kind of like manga like static mm -hmm. kind of scenes that are moving around and everything. But uh, they did a good job with the art. I think it's really rescued by the art in many ways. And I'm not kidding about the tank looking like repurposed assets from Metal Slug, but Metal Slug is a gorgeous game. So I don't mind, you know. Yeah, I think it's important to just kind of give those lesser known kind of B-tier RPGs and stuff uh, a little bit of your time once in a while because, you, you know, it might not end up on your favorite of the year, but that doesn't mean it has to. It could be a perfectly enjoyable uh, game to wind down with for a while and probably surprise you in several ways. The battle system is pretty good, actually, Nadia. Yeah, so yeah. you have machine guns and then cannons and then heavy cannons and you assign different characters to them. They can link together. There's uh, an interrupt system similar to kind of like Grandia. And then if you're in desperation mode, you can use this thing called the Soul Cannon, which will kill one of your characters in exchange for killing the boss. No, no. So if I have not had a Valkyrie Chronicle experience since maybe Indivisible, and that's the only one I really know that I've had, would this be a good way to just fill the gap for a bit? I mean, it's somewhat different from Valkyrie Chronicles. I think just the aesthetic is mm -hmm. somewhat similar. Like mm -hmm. the way that the game plays out is you're sitting in the tank and it's rolling along automatically. Right. And then you run into an enemy encounter and then you fight the enemies and you have to get through it. 
And then the next stop might be a town or you might be able to go inside the tank and interact with the different characters. Because, by the way, there are affinities. And as you raise up the character relationships, that they get more powerful. There's a surprising amount to this game. I'm kind of into it. When you first mentioned this game, I thought for a minute you were, I thought for a minute you were uh, comparing it to not Valkyrie Chronicles, but Valkyrie Profile. I always get those two mixed up, but now I know. Okay, I understand how this connects to Valkyrie uh, to <laughs> Valkyrie Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know me. If everything, every game is either about Valkyrie Profile or Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah. So. <laughs> I would actually love to have another Valkyria Chronicles. Maybe maybe soon. I liked the second one quite a bit, or fourth, or whichever one it was. It was it's good. on Nintendo Switch, so you should check it out. But first, play Disco Elysium, Nadia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. That's an order. The Blood yeah, God demands it. It's always harder to... like. I really wish that like we were uh, doing this when the game was out on the Switch, because it's coming, it's just not out yet. Oh, uh, that's true. It's hard to drag yourself onto the PS5, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, or the computer, as it were. All right, Nadia, let's get on to the news. So the big one, there was a Pokemon Presents earlier this week. We got a closer look at Pokemon Legends. Nadia, what did you think of Pokemon Legends? I'm curious what your uh, your impressions are. I think it looks really cute. Um, I think it was IGN who said, and they might be right about this, it's more like Monster Hunter than like Ocarina of Time, not Ocarina of Time, but like Breath of the Wild, like everyone is saying. And going by the description of the game, I think they're right about that. You seem to have a headquarters and you go back to it and you do quests for different people. So it does sound very Monster Hunter-like. And of course, you're out in the field interacting with the Pokemon kind of live. Like you don't really switch into a battle scene. You go, you just fight on the on the uh, terrain that you encountered the Pokemon on. And I think it looks really good. I, I'm looking forward to it. I know there are some comments about the... Um, uh, how the uh, I, people are saying the game chugs. I don't really notice it, but uh, I did notice some comments about that. Of course, you have the discourse starting all over again about how terrible it looks and how underpowered it is. And uh, look at Elder Scrolls uh, from like 10 years ago. Look how much better this looks. <laughs> so we're having Treegate all over again, except it's even more ridiculous. I don't know. I don't think this looks better than Elder Scrolls. <laughs> I think Skyrim looks better, but... No, no, I, that's what I they're, think saying. they're saying. It's all right. They're saying it does, like, yeah, they're saying like this old Elder Scrolls game looks better than this new Pokemon game. And that's like, that's because Game Freak is supposedly lazy. But you're talking about two totally different styles of game yes. and gameplay. Like, that just makes no sense to me. So, yeah, again, you have Treegate. Look how many trees are in Elder Scrolls. Look how few trees are in are in Pokemon, I think is the argument. It's so stupid. Please stop. I think people would like a game that looked like Genshin Impact at a minimum. Like, I, I don't actually think Pokemon Legends looks amazing. Like from no, a graphic it look standpoint, amazing, but it looks but it looks good. Like it looks like a world that I want to kind of get yeah. into. Yeah, I mean, stylistically, it's interesting to look at, but yeah. it's okay to criticize the tech or oh, yeah, you know, being substandard compared to. I mean, compared to like Monster Hunter Rise, for example, which is also on the Nintendo Switch. It's there's no denying that Pokemon is behind the times when it comes to visuals, but we give them a pass for the most part because their games are very good. Okay, if they were making a, com- a comparison to Monster Hunter, sure, that's fine. But this is—they were making a comparison to like a, a Elder Scrolls. Like, it just there, there's no comparison there to me. I just want to point out that Skyrim is also on the Switch. Skyrim is a yeah, that's true. It is on the Switch, and it is an open world game, much like this game will be. So yeah, I can see why I can see why the comparisons were happening. This is what I'm saying, Nadia. 
Well, it's not the comparisons that bother me. It's the usual discourse about how mm. the Pokemon lazy game developers, lazy discourse. game developers, like they have so yeah. much money they don't care, and Sword and Shield were terrible, which they weren't. They were, I really liked them. And if you say to these people, "Oh, I actually enjoyed Sword and Shield. I thought it was, I thought it was very good," they will tell you, "No, you're brainwashed. You don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're a bootlicker," which is a great, isn't that great? Oh, like God. someone calling you a bootlicker because you like a game, like as if there's not a million people being exploited by corporations every day. And oh, I like this Pokemon game. It's nice. Oh, screw you, you bootlicker. What the hell? I had a really good friend staying over a week ago, and she is also a big Pokemon fan. And I don't know how Sword and Shield came up, but she mentioned offhand how much she hated the graphics and everything and how big a disappointment it was. And I was like, I am not opening my mouth. I am not saying (laughs) anything. I am not engaging with this discourse. It's kind of pointless discourse to engage in, as of course we're engaging in it right now, but I'm just saying how pointless <laughs> it is because at this point, you've made up your mind. It's you, you either like the game or you absolutely despise it and think it was the end of all things Pokemon, and then you just kind of think back about how our generation thought that uh, Ruby and Sapphire were the end of Pokemon and its creativity, and it just repeats. Well, the Pokemon fan base is quite young, and I would say that more given to being toxic. Sorry. Sorry, young people. I'm old. No, I am absolutely old. I have to say that. I understand console wars, game wars, fandom wars. That stuff was all part of our growing up, but we didn't. When I was in my early 20s, I probably would have been completely losing my mind over Pokemon's graphics or whatever. I would have been one of those kids on there now, like supporting Sony or Xbox blindly, even though the two of them I practically have a, sh- a handshake across the aisle. The, you know, the, the fan bases will still rip each other apart. Well, let's talk about Pokemon Legends, actually. So I do like the style of this game and I am excited to play it. Um, I like that they've managed to split the difference with the core series and experiment with open world gameplay, kind of make the game that people have been crying out for for the past several years an open world game where you can actually interact with the pokemon in kind of an action-based context it's a it's a neat idea it really brings the world to life but it doesn't going it's not going to cut in to the pokemon's uh, the mainline pokemon games which will continue to be turn-based thank god pokemon legends also like i was just criticizing the actual graphics but visually i think it's really interesting to look at there are a lot mm-hmm. of really good little details. People were pointing out that it bears a strong resemblance to historical Hokkaido. Exactly. And there are cool little details. Like if you look on one side, you'll see kind of the purple roots for Di- for uh, Dialga. And the other is kind of a lighter pink for Palkia, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Stuff like that. So it's cool. Yeah, I love the little touches like the little firework that goes off when you catch a Pokemon. It's very cute. And apparently Sinnoh Growlithe was trending on Twitter after this. Everybody was super into Sinnoh Growlithe. How, how, as a noted Arcanine liker, what mm. was your take? Definitely interesting. I think he's very cute. He has a much more of a kind of a, a foo dog look to him. I'm curious to see how Arcanine comes out. I think that's the one everyone wants to see. Kotaku said, these Pokemon are probably going extinct. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, they either evolve out of their forms or just die. I mean, uh, you could say, well, their variants, maybe they'll carry on in another game. But no, if they haven't carried on in other games by now, there's a good chance that they won't. And they probably just uh, (laughs) die off, whether by human intervention or disaster. Or isn't that cheerful? Well, Pokemon Legends will have home support, as has been confirmed, as will the Diamond and Pearl remakes. I'm not going to try and figure out what the heck their names are. 
But <laughs> that could mean that Sinnoh Growlithe gets to live on in the oh. world of Sword and Shield. Would it suck if, like, you transferred him over to Sword and Shield, for example, and he changed back into regular Growlithe? You'd be like, what the hell? That's, that's a ripoff right there. I almost guarantee that they're going to have Sinnoh Growlithe in that game. Yeah. And that's going to be kind of a, a hook to get you to want to uh, pick up Pokemon Legends. No, absolutely. Uh, you can have him and he's be part of your collection. He is very cute. And it's stealthily brilliant on Game Freak's part. I know that they weren't doing this intentionally, but it's going to make me want to go back to playing Sword and Shield because I'm going to be able to get Infernape in my copy of Sword ah. and Shield at last because of the Diamond and Pearl remakes. Are you going to choose Infer... It is, is a Chimchar in Legends? So, no, yes. those monsters. Oh, no, that's terrible. I'm taking Rowlet. But I know why they picked those particular Pokemon. Oh, why? I was curious about that. Because, so Cyndaquil was from Gold and Silver, and Gold and Silver was the most traditionally Japanese of mm. these games up until this point. Um, Johto is very old school Kyoto in right. many ways. Rowlet evolves into Decidueye, and Decidueye has that Japanese ghost-looking kind of for- form to him. Yes, and then cool. uh, the little otter, sad otter, Ashwat is that <laughs> his name? Ashwat, yeah, evolves into Samurat, so right. like a samurai. Get it? Right. So it's all themed. That's why ah. they picked those particular Pokemon to be in this game is to fit into the actual kind of aesthetic of the game. So that's why we don't have the British rabbit soccer player in. Yes. That's why we don't have the British rabbit soccer player. You what? (laughs) You what, mate? Where am I? (laughs) You're in Northern rural Japan, circa the, you know, middle ages or whatever. And by the way, it gets real cold here. Uh, As for the diamond and pearl remakes, I'm into them. They apparently will have quite a few interesting changes to the actual gameplay, which I'm looking forward to. I'm really happy to have secret bases back. The tunnels are going to be fun to visit. I'm just super happy to be back in Sinnoh, which holds a special place in my heart because that Ah. was the generation that was out when I was living in Japan. Oh, yes. And I can't wait to do the rhythm mini game. I bet it's going to be really good on the Switch. If people are mad about Legends, they are big mad about Diamond and Pearl remakes. And I think they look cute. I think they look adorable in their own like sort of weird way. I think they look like a continuation of the Pokemon Let's Go series, which I liked a lot. I liked Pokemon Let's Go a lot. So I'm happy to see it carry on. You can see already like, hey, here's your Pokemon trailing behind you. You're going to be fun. I'm assuming you're going to get your ride on them when the time comes. And that was a lot of fun in, in, in Let's Go. It's not as simple as Let's Go, though. Like, it's definitely not geared towards toddlers, but it's certainly geared towards, uh, say, kids like my nephew, who are are definitely way too young for um, the original Diamond and Pearl, but are probably going to be really enraptured by what we have going on with uh, Shiny Diamond, Amazing Pearl, whatever it's called. I would have very much preferred something much more along the lines of Sword and Shield, that made use of the online open field connectivity elements, but Mm. maybe more refined. Because frankly, Sword and Shield just looks a lot better than the Diamond and Pearl remakes. I do think that I find the 2.5D overhead much more of a straightforward remake of the DS game slightly off-putting. I like the battle system. The The battles look really nice. I'm sure the game itself will be pretty fun. But historically, the remakes have been much more in line with the core games. So I'm a little bit sad, I'm not going to lie, 
that it doesn't bear a much closer resemblance, like that they aren't really truly bringing the Sinnoh region, which is one of my favorites to life. But then again, we're getting that in Pokemon Legends, so I can't complain too much. Yeah, they definitely have their plate full over at Game Freak, and um, I'm looking I'm looking forward to what they've got. I think that Legend will be a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and uh, I will give Diamond and Pearl a try. Like I said, I bounced off them the first time a long time ago, but I, I'm up for another try. Yeah, I will look forward to playing Diamond and Pearl again in anticipation of heading over to Legends. It's going to be a real Pokemon kind of fall, won't it? It is. It's going to be a very Pokemon fall. I'm looking forward to it. Actually, no, it's going to be a little bit of a Pokemon winter, too, because that's when I think Legend <laughs> Arceus comes out. But it's going to be a, a nice Pokemon fall in winter. This winter is going to basically be 2010 all over again, because the biggest games that are coming out are GTA V, Skyrim, a Pokemon Diamond and Pearl <laughs> remake, and Halo. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're right. Jeez. So we're we're all getting old, and we get to repeat now. Now that now that are some of our listeners who are a little bit older now, and um, we're maybe a little bit too young, two thousand ten. Now you get to know what it's like to be alive. So please look forward to that. Everything repeats every ten years. You can't miss anything because it oh, never goes away. And Witcher three, also oh, Witcher three is one yes. of the biggest games. So basically, two thousand seven to twenty fifteen, it's all repeating in one single fall. <laughs> It may as well. I can't wait till we get a remake of 2020 and 2021. And we can no. do it over again the right Dear way. God, no. Well, this time without the virus, hopefully. <laughs> please. Yes, please. Well, since we've been talking about Skyrim quite a bit, well, we now know that Skyrim will be getting a 10th anniversary edition that is coming out for the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series XS. Bethesda PS5 fans, you do not have to worry. We'll actually get to replay Skyrim again. Hooray. Yeah, this edition, um, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the version they released like five years ago. Like uh, The remastered version, which you can go find uh, on our podcast archives because we reviewed it when it came out in 2016. Oh my God. Okay, so yeah, that you'll be able to upgrade for free to the next generation of consoles. I should say the current generation of consoles, but you know what I mean. But the uh, anniversary edition will have the edition of I think it's called uh, Creator Content or... Creator Club? Creator Club, yeah. So you'll have a lot of uh, stuff included from Creator Club, which like on the on the anniversary edition. And that's a very interesting idea. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, I think that it's falling in line with what Fallout 4 did, where they had uh, kind of a similar creation club um, on consoles, especially on Xbox. So um, there's also going to be fishing. <laughs> Hooray! Yes, yay! Finally, I can really enjoy Skyrim to, to its fullest, fullest. But yeah, I think that's really cool because, well, Bethesda, let's face it, the first thing anyone does to their games is mods the hell out of it as soon as they download it, no matter what edition it is. So them just saying, hey, you know, <laughs> we know our game is broken, and here's, here's some things that fix it by fans, so uh, enjoy. So if you have the Skyrim Special Edition, the next-gen upgrade is free. But it won't go up to the Anniversary Edition. You won't get all of those buffs. So I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure Anniversary Edition will end up on Game Pass at some point anyway. So I will probably play it just out of habit. Yeah, it'll definitely end up on Game Pass, if not from day one. I mean, I'm excited to see Skyrim on next-gen consoles. I mean, it was already available through Game Pass, the remastered version. So I can't imagine it being that much different this time around but what's 
most remarkable is that when it got announced, you know, our traffic went crazy because people still really, really, really care about Skyrim 10 years later. So can't blame Bethesda for continuing to cash in, I guess. No, I mean, if it wasn't profitable, they wouldn't be cashing in. They would it would have stopped that a long time ago. People, Nadia, are so ridiculously just so excited to play the Elder Scrolls 6. Like literally any the Elder Scrolls 6 tidbit just mm -hmm. graphic goes crazy. People are nuts for this series. They're going to have to wait a long time for six, which is probably why five is coming out again, because, uh, well, we can't give you six. Here's some scraps of meat, you dogs. Go away. Yeah, they're not going to get six for another four or five years, probably. So, I mean, it was, I don't even think they'd even started it in 2018. So no, in no. pre-production at best. Yeah, So. Yeah. Yeah, so, but we'll get Starfield next year, which exactly. I'm actually looking forward to more than The Elder Scrolls Six. I'm looking forward to kind of seeing more of the game. I feel like we just have not seen very much of it, and this is a very big game that we're getting. Beyond that, I've already played Skyrim, and I have a lot of games <laughs> to yeah. play, so I probably shouldn't play it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Skyrim is one of those games where, like, I shouldn't play this. I played it a thousand times. I got a million games to play, and then you put it up anyway. Nadia... Cyberpunk 2077 continues to be surreptitiously supported by CD Projekt. It recently received the quote-unquote biggest patch to date, which includes a myriad of additions specifically to the GPS system, which was kind of annoying to use. It'll also be easier to reallocate perk points. They're adding a lot of quality of life additions to previous gen versions. Also, notably, the when the PS4 version of Cyberpunk came back onto the Sony store and immediately jumped to number one, now it has been discounted to $10. So if you oh. want to try out the very broken version of Cyberpunk, you can go ahead and do so for just $10. Bucks. I mean, you could spend your you could spend ten bucks on worse. I think you could get like a, I don't know a fast food meal that gives you food poisoning, but at least Cyberpunk won't do that. I mean. I would not play. It's okay on a PS4 Pro, I bet. Yeah, Just yeah. not on a base PS4. Just don't play it on a base PS4 no, for your no, own I, good. Honestly, right now, Cyberpunk, I just would not play on a console. I would play the PC version, mm. and I'm not getting the console version until I hear, hey, here's the all-clear whistle. Go ahead and play this perfectly rebalanced game that's actually playable now. I've already said that I'm waiting for the proper next-gen release whenever that exactly. comes around. But in the meantime, I th it sounds like The Witcher is going to beat it to the punch. So that's the one I'm going to be playing first is I'm going to finally finish off. I'm going to finally finish off the Blood and Wine DLC. Very excited to do, finally do that on a next-gen console. Yeah, I think if I did play Skyrim again, I would probably play the DLC because I never finished it. Oh, yeah? No, I never finished the DLC. I, I think all you I should remember... try the Dawnguard DLC. It's pretty good. Yeah, I'd probably like the Dawnguard stuff. I know that... Uh, last time I played Remaster, I went to Whiterun or something and I got like blindsided by a million vampires and said, oh, this must be the DLC because this wasn't the original game. And finally, Nadia, I want to call attention to a cool oral history over on The Gamer. I believe They've been doing Dragon Age Week ah. over there. They have a lot of Bioware fans around those parts. A lot of great stories coming out from both Dragon Age and Skyrim, actually. There's been some good Skyrim development stories as well, including... The secret of the treasure fox and how mm. bees were causing the cart to be launched into space in Skyrim. It was pretty good. You should go check those out. 
that sounds like the most Skyrim-ass bug in the universe. The bees launch the card into the stratosphere. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> Wonderful. But the Dragon Age oral history, as it turns out, they got the name Dragon Age from a random name generator. I love that so much because I have absolutely gone to random name generation and said, oh my God, I need a name. Please give me a name. Okay, that works. They had originally wanted to set Dragon Age after the high fantasy portion of their particular world. And so all of the dragons had died out. But then the random name generator spat out Dragon Age and they were like, oh, well, I mean, we really like this name. It's a good name. I guess we should have some dragons in this world. And so they went back to the drawing board and that's how they got dragons in Dragon Age. I love that's it. actually hilarious because that reminds me of George R. R. Martin. He didn't have dragons in a song of ice and fire at first, but someone dared him to put dragons in there. It might have even been Stephen King. I don't remember. But they said, why doesn't your fantasy story have dragons? Well, it doesn't have to have dragons. Uh, you know what? OK, I'll throw some dragons in there. And the dragons in a, a song of ice and fire. Really cool. So dragons always make things better. It was really interesting to read about this game that everybody seemed to be making out of obligation to appease the Neverwinter fan base. And Bioware had already mentally moved on to KOTOR, Mass Effect, games like that. And they're like, eh, Dragon Age, we'll make this game, we'll release it to recoup our investment, whatever. And then it unexpectedly became a hit. Yeah. Like a <laughs> oh, bigger oh, hit shit. than Mass Effect, even. And they're like, People like it. And what's killing, what kills me is that instead of going, oh, maybe we should, uh, you know, people really want this high fantasy game that has really good uh, meaty RPG mechanics. People are really into that. They're like, no, let's make an action game. <laughs> and then they made Dragon <laughs> Age 2. They sure did. They sure did. And you, Dragon Age 2 stands. I'm looking at you, Eric Van Allen. You're wrong. Dragon Age 2 is a bad game. Just is. I have no dragon in this race. I never played 2. But go check out the Dragon Age oral history on the gamer. It's excellent. Nadia, let's continue on to the main topic, which is our Pantheon mini for the Lord of the Rings, the Third Age. Don't go away. Okay, it is time to wrap up the Summer of the Rings our long-running discussion in which we talked about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We went back and checked out the Hobbit trilogy. We paid tribute to all of the dragons in honor of Smaug. And we also talked about broadly how the Lord of the Rings influenced RPGs. But we are going to drill down to one of the weirdest uh, kind of cases in the Lord of the Rings universe. The time that they tried to take Lord of the Rings and turn it into Final Fantasy X and Nadia, you had never even heard of this game before this episode. No, it was funny when you asked me to to the notes for it. It's something completely different because I had no idea what you were talking about. I mean, it was it's one of those games that's always existed in the back of my mind. Like, okay, well, that's cool. It remind, It's almost like the way I regard Harry Potter. Okay, there's a bunch of games over there. I'm not interested, but they exist. It was very much the same with EA and their Lord of the Rings games for me. Nadia, this game was very much on my radar when it came out in 2004. Ah. I was very into RPG as I was very into Lord of the Rings. I was paying attention to EA's Lord of the Rings releases, which kind of, uh, they kind of ran the gamut, honestly, mm. from weird, just boring licensed action games. Like, okay, Return of the King was passable, but not especially good, honestly. There, were, there was that weird uh, GBA tactics game that yeah. I already mentioned. 
they I think they did a real time strategy game at some point. I think it was called might have been called War in the North. I, I can't remember. It's like all over the map with the games that they were making with this particular license. But in 2004, after the movies were done, they went and made a Final Fantasy X like turn based RPG that encompassed the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. And the reason this jumped out at me was that this had to be the very last time that a Western developer wanted to mimic a Japanese RPG instead of just doing a full-blown action game. Yeah, the previous two games by EA for Two Towers and for uh, Return of the King, those were more action-based. But yeah, these were these were actually bonafide JRPG mechanics here. You have the random encounters, you have the turn-based battles, and it's again, it's funny because I remember reviewing games like Prince Caspian back in the day. And it was the same idea, the same thing where a Western developer took kind of a more Japanese approach to their RPG and gave us a game. And you're right, doesn't really happen anymore. And it didn't happen before then either. A solid 10 years later when Middle-earth Shadow of War came out, that was the kind of game you would expect from a Western developer, an open world action game with some RPG elements, that kind of thing. So it's such such a weird curiosity to see a straight up Final Fantasy clone, only it's Lord of the Rings. And you know what? I'm there for it, honestly. That's why it just really caught my attention and I decided to rent it back in the day because you could still rent games at this time. Did not get all that far, but I do remember thinking that the graphics were quite pretty at the time and it has remained lodged in my head ever since, Nadia. And it, uh, you know, in its own weird way, is still remembered by a handful of RPG fans, I think. Yeah, I was looking at the graphics myself, and the faces look wrong, because of course they do. Anytime you get a game with characters based on real people, real actors, you're going to get something that looks wrong. But it seemed okay. Like I'm sure if I had played it back in the day, I would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a good way for me to pass a few hours. Yeah, by PS2 standards, it looks really good. Yeah, exactly. Like It, it doesn't look bad at all as a PS2 game. But if you're not familiar with Lord of the Rings, the third age, I've already described the basic premise, but from a story perspective, you're basically acting out all of the events of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but you're not playing as a fellowship. You're not playing as Frodo, Sam, um, you're not playing as Aragorn. I mean, you have Gandalf with you, but at times, but you're playing kind of an off-brand fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) You are the dollar store fellowship in this game. And I was looking at one review who described it basically as in this game, you are just tagging along behind the fellowship, always one step behind. And again, I think I mentioned this when you first brought the game up to me. I said, oh, so it's like Lion King one and a half where Timon and Pumbaa are looking at the story from their perspective and saying how they affected it and how they affected the event. So it's basically that. And there's some very weird trivia. So this game has kind of a tangential connection to Hironobu Sakaguchi. It wasn't just because a developer went, you know what, I really enjoy the game Final Fantasy X. It's because they had an actual Final Fantasy developer running the game like as a key producer on this game. And I'll get to him in just a moment. So this game was developed by EA Redwood Shores. This was before they became made Dead Space I was like four years later and became Visceral Games. And of course, this was 2004. JRPGs, we were reaching the end of the original heyday of Japanese games. But 
JRPGs were still very strong and very successful because of the PS2. Square still had a lot of cachet due to Final Fantasy X, Final Fantasy X-2. In fact, I believe it was 2004 was the year that Final Fantasy X-2 came out. It was one of the most anticipated games of that year. So a lot of Western developers were like, yeah, like we want to uh, kind of get some of the glory, some of the excitement that is coming from these JRPGs that dominated the the original PlayStation and PlayStation 2. So in its own weird way, it kind of made sense for a licensed game developer like EA to go out and be like, oh, let's make a Final Fantasy clone. And of course, this was the heyday of licensed games, Nadia, back when companies <laughs> yes. like THQ basically had a never-ending spigot of money from Nickelodeon and God knows what other licensed games, because mobile games didn't really exist yet. See, what happened was first you had your licensed game, as you said, it was like a, a spigot that never turned off. But then what happened was a lot of those games moved to web-based and Facebook, and then they moved on, as you said, to mobile. So this was the last golden age for licensed games. If you want to call it a golden age, it was more like a gray age, I suppose, because uh, licensed games were given hit, hit and miss for sure. I feel like the last hurrah for licensed games as we know them was early in the 360 era where we were getting Marvel games because there was a Captain America, the first Avenger licensed game that was kind of an off-brand Uncharted where it was right. too short, but it was pretty. And it was just like, okay, uh, you get to basically play through the game, the movie, whatever. You know, those games weren't always great, but they were definitely higher budget and a little more effort put into them versus, uh, say, when Disney finally really bought out all of Marvel and now, hey, Captain America, you want to play as him? Well, here's this Square Enix game that nobody likes, or you can go to uh, the Apple Store and download a Match 3 with Captain America on it. Like, that's <laughs> those are your choices. Yeah, EA had a lot of licenses, and the Harry Potter games tended to be very bad, though I seem to recall that The Order of the Phoenix was an okay, off-brand, open-world game. I think the reason that the LEGO Star Wars and LEGO Harry Potter games stood out at the time was that they weren't just a bad recreation of the movies, like that a lot of love and a lot of thought went into them. For a long time... In fact, I think it may still be the case. Lego Harry Potter is the by far the best Harry Potter game, period. Lego games were basically your answer to decent licensed games. You could always count on them for better or for worse. Saying, kind of putting an emphasis on worse here because uh, once you play one Lego game that's licensed, you've played pretty much all of them. I once had to come up with 1,600 uh, words for one of the Lego licensed games. I can't remember which one it was. And I just, that was the most agonizing review I've ever written in my life. I could not come up with anything to say about this game. It was Lego. What do you want from me? Lego Star Wars was amazing. It wasn't Lego Star Wars that I was playing. It was something else. Um, was it Lego Pirates of the Caribbean? Because that one was very good. <laughs> I might have been that. All I know is it was boring as hell and I wanted to die. I think that the Star Wars prequels, aside from being bad movies, were the worst thing to ever happen to LucasArts. Because all through the 90s, LucasArts was able to basically play in the Star Wars Expanded Universe and do what it wanted. And the second the prequels came out, it entered into the licensed game ghetto, where they had to make games like Episode One Racer, uh, Bounty Hunter, Attack of the Clones, uh, they Jedi Power Battles. And I think they might have been contracting other studios as well. But that... The through the 90s, the level of Star Wars games was very generally very high. 
they were really marketed hard towards kids in particular, uh, especially like sort of the pod racing games. Mm. Pod racing. Yeah. But yeah, especially then Lucas was like, no, you're going to make games based on the prequels. We're done with the OG series. And of course, the prequels weren't very good. So (laughs) you got bad games based on the prequels. There was, God, back in the day when Star Wars before was really kind of swallowed up by those prequel games, you had like, what was it? Masters of Terrace Kasi, that really terrible fighting game and Star Wars chess that took five years to load up one move. Uh, There was some really experimental stuff out there. I think there was a Yoda Stories game. But I think there was, yes. The actually I take it back, the Wii was kind of the last hurrah of licensed games because that was the final deluge before mobile really took mm, hold. You're right. And that was when things started to get kind of cheaper because it was like, hey, here's this simple game, made even simpler, and you have Waggle. Wii, you're a Jedi, you can wave around your lightsaber. Great. So two thousand four Lord of the Rings is still very much a thing, even though the movies series had ended the previous year. And EA greenlights a Lord of the Rings RPG, Lord of the Rings, the third age. Its executive producer is a man named Steve Gray. Steve Gray had worked on Final Fantasy VII with Squaresoft and had in, and also was a general manager slash VP for the Western team that worked for Parasite Eve. And he had a lot of interesting stories about working for Parasite Eve, Nadia. Apparently, there was a mixed team. It was a Western team and a Japanese team. And he talked a lot about the challenges of trying to get a Japanese team and a Western team aligned because they just had different practices. The Western team wasn't really used to how Squaresoft did things. The Japanese team was very used to how Squaresoft did things. <laughs> there was differences in corporate etiquette. And honestly, I can kind of understand because I myself once worked on a mixed Japanese Western team when I was a curriculum developer for GABA back when I was living in Japan. And we kind of existed in our own bubble. And our uh, our boss was she identified as culturally Japanese, but she had grown up in Cleveland. So she was able to kind of interact with both sides of the team. But I, while we were kind of allowed to do our own thing, I got the impression very much that we existed in our own bubble that she intentionally created because she didn't want, it wasn't to protect us. It was to keep us from embarrassing ourselves around the rest of the Japanese employees because Let's be honest, we're just freaking loudmouth Americans. I mean, yeah, you you must have had to be just kind of like sequestering you like your dogs that haven't been given their rabies shots yet. <laughs> I do remember a specific meeting where she was like, OK, we really do need to talk about etiquette. OK, so this is how you address like the managers. Yeah. Like, here's how you do the business card thing. This is what right. you do when you're coming into a meeting for the first time. Please do this. That makes sense. I mean, that's all stuff that's extremely important to Japanese culture and corporate culture in particular. Even now, when people, things are a little bit looser over there and people understand more here, there's still that gap that is can be a little bit hard to plumb. But Gray apparently was personally invited by Sakaguchi to join Square. This is a story that he told. I knew some Square guys from various places in the past, plus I've always been a fan of their games. When Sakaguchi-san asked me to join the company. I couldn't say yes fast enough. Some of the other guys at Square invited me to Tokyo to meet Sakaguchi, and we were in a private booth overlooking the massive dance club called Welfare. He asked me to join Square and put out his hand. 
I shook it, and the other Japanese guys asked me, do you know you just signed the deal? To which I answered, yes. Because it was a handshake? That's uh... I guess so, yeah. He's like, he's in. And they were like, so what are your memories of working at Square? He's like, I don't know. I went to a lot of clubs. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> Japanese girls. I'm like, ew, Steve, come on. <laughs> Steve, please. And he said that he really credited Sakaguchi for learning how to actually make games. He said that he kind of struggled because Sakaguchi had a very high bar in terms of like the product he, he said. I have to say at the time when I was at Square, I didn't really agree 100% with how he wanted to do things. But in the following years, I came to really appreciate how his approach to game development is able to consistently create such high quality products. No, I've rarely had the freedom he has as a developer, but his ideas fit into development, even if you have to pay more attention to the schedule. He also said that Sakaguchi was like so exacting that like he was having a hard time a lot of the time. Which is like Sakaguchi was kind of a perfectionist when it came to games. And I imagine that that was the case with a lot of Japanese game developers um, around that time. So he learned a lot about how to make RPGs from Squaresoft. Oh, that makes sense. He honestly learned from the best. So he bounced around a bunch. Uh, he tried to start his own studio that eventually, I believe, he sold to THQ. He eventually lands at EA Redwood Shores. He had always wanted to make a Lord of the Rings RPG. He had been thinking about it for like 10 years. So apparently even before the Peter Jackson games. Now here's his chance. He gets to help make a Lord of the Rings RPG. And what's he going to do? He's going to make it like Final Fantasy. Apparently he wasn't directly, directly involved in the development of, Square, of Final Fantasy VII. He worked on some maps with Square Enix or Square right. LA. Is that that's what he did? Yeah, because um, I feel like the real mixing of teams didn't start in earnest until Final Fantasy IX with the Hawaiian Studio. But I mean, I didn't know mm. there was any sort of Western and Eastern mixing at all. That's really interesting. Yeah, no. So this is an interesting bit of Square history that I was not really aware of until I started doing yeah, the research yeah, for this same. episode. So oh, that's cool. They start making this game. They had a bunch of ideas that they wanted to do. One of them was that they wanted to have the actual literal active time battle system in this game, but they couldn't really get it to work. So they went with more of a Final Fantasy X approach, which was the when you're selecting moves, time does not move on, right? It's the conditional turn battle system. See, when I read that, I thought that you're just describing the active time battle when you set it to wait, because when you set it to wait and you go through all your stuff, like your your inventory for magic or items, time doesn't pass. But is it different here? In Final Fantasy X, the, there is no bar. There is no active time bar. You just move from character to character, right? And one of the differences, actually, was that in Final Fantasy X, you could swap your characters in and out at will and bring them in. Which, by the way, Final Fantasy X was a much better looking game than this one. Yeah, <laughs> let's be honest here. Let's be honest. And a lot of that is to do with the art. The, uh, the art here is very drab. In many yeah. ways, whereas Final Fantasy X is much more colorful. In Lord of the Rings Third Age, you cannot swap out characters. Oh, okay. So that is a little bit different then. So if your party, so there's a large party and you can put them in, you just can't swap them during a battle. So if you lose your three characters, they're dead and everybody is like, well, I guess they're dead. You want to go home? <laughs> okay. ship is over. Let's go to the, <laughs> the Green Dragon and get a, a pint or whatever. Yeah, no. Go to a Japanese dance club, hang out with Sakaguchi. Oh, I'd do that. That'd be pretty cool. The cast is almost all basically generic characters from Lord of the Rings. 
So you have off-brand Boromir, off-brand Aragorn, off-brand Gimli, off-brand Aragorn, only she's a girl. (laughs) Yeah, the cast is very much like, here's our dwarf, here is our elf, here is our ranger. Yay, you're all going on adventure together. Did I say off-brand Aragorn? I said off-brand Legolas. Oh, oh, okay. I guess Arwen. Arwen. Yeah. She's basically Arwen to the point that she can use the, um, do you remember the unicorn attack in the water? Yeah, yeah, with a ring race. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she could totally do that. So she uses it to bet she to attack the Nazgul, and actually, that's a late game spell. It doesn't come into much later, and it doesn't do nearly as much damage. But she has cutscene power, so it's okay. As long as you have cutscene power, you do anything. And there's also off-brand Rohirrim named Aiden, and Charles Martinet actually yes. voices this character. So Mario's in there. I love it when Martinet has his sneak attacks inside of games. It always it always makes me happy, especially when you don't know he's there, but you recognize the voice and you're like, hey, it's a Mario. It was designed by Chris Temmel, who has designed Boogerman. Man, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> 1994. I never played that game. I had no desire to. I just thought it was funny. The writer is Michael Becker, who has some interesting credits. He wrote the scripts for EA's Two Towers, Return of the King as well. But he was also a programmer and an artist. He's part of the art direction for 1994's John Madden Football. Is that the one that's big and important, Cat? I don't know. John Madden Football. Okay, so by this time, Madden 93 was definitely a thing. So that might have been it. But John Madden Football might have been when the series first started in like 1989. Right, okay. So I don't so, know which football. Maybe it was various Maddens, unlike the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. Yeah, I just the only thing I remember about Madden back in the day is it had the talking and everyone thought that was real hot shit. The game, as I already mentioned, basically follows in the footsteps of the actual Fellowship. And so it's like, oh, uh, the Fellowship has already departed, but now we're going to fight the Watcher in the water. The Fellowship yeah. has already departed, but we're going to fight alongside... the. We're in the Mines of Moria... The fellowship, the real fellowship is a floor above us while we're a floor below. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine, though, being a floor below? You're minding your own business and all of a sudden this big-ass Balrog comes falling down and a wizard follows him screaming and, of course, it's gone in a second and you're looking at your companions. What the hell was that? You see the Balrog going up to face Gandalf. Okay, yeah, but then he comes back down. (laughs) At various points, you actually team up with Gandalf for example, you fight, you team up with Gandalf to fight the Balrog. I'm like, I don't remember that part in the movie. No, it kind of strikes me. I know this isn't probably how it comes off in the game, but just on paper, it sounds like, you know, when uh, you have the real adventurers going up on ahead and in the background, you have like their kid brothers and sisters and uh, Gandalf goes back to be nice to them and like give them a, little, a few tips like, you know, here's how to here's how to use your little pocket knife or whatever. The Balrog incidentally totally killed me. Uh, that battle was really tough. Well, it's a Balrog. I suppose it should be kind of uh, hard to beat. He has like 70,000 hit points compared to just 17,000 for Grimma Wormtongue, who is also a boss. Wow. Yeah. Well, Grimma Wormtongue, you could, you could beat him up outside in the schoolyard. Yeah, He's whatever. Easy. Like he gets thrown down the steps at <laughs> Rohan, but... <laughs> the the Balrog, you know, he's a monster from the underworld. Of course he's going to have a ton of hit points. Wormtongue, I'm just thinking of him bouncing down the stairs with like hit points subtracting from him every single time he hits a stair. That's funny. The best strategy probably is just to let your party die and then let Gandalf actually deal with <laughs> the actual <laughs> Balrog. So is this one of those those fights that are supposed to be unwinnable or they can no, be No, no, you can win it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here's an interesting aspect of this game. There's an evil mode. Okay. That's right. 
Yes. That's so cool. So you could play as the RPG enemies trying to kill this party. That's pretty cool. But I'm thinking, okay, are they just like mooks with like sticks? Because no, uh, you take control of like the Witch King and literally Sauron at the oh. various points. So you're actually playing the boss battles from the boss's perspective. So imagine a- if you got to be Sephiroth doing the one wing at the, the supernova and everything on the party. That's you. That's a pretty cool idea. That's the kind of thing I'd like to see more in modern RPGs. And then you can target the healer, of course, and take them down immediately and uh, just spam the cheesiest attacks possible. Here's the thing, though. It gets quite hard in hard mode, apparently. Like, they will get very cheesy with their own one-shot attacks. I want to play a full-blown game where you are playing the evil people in a turn-based RPG now, trying to take down the opposing party. That'd be funny because yes, the first thing you're going to do is 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 attack the healer, which which monsters and RPGs almost never do on purpose, but from a strategic standpoint, even though it makes a ton of sense. So now you get to turn the tables and say, "Hey, you stupid idiots! Here's how it's done," and you can. Reminds me of Dungeon Keeper, that was made right. by Potter, Peter Molyneux back in the day, where you would build a dungeon to entice a group of RPG heroes in, and you would have all of the traps and everything. I loved that game. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I know they had a mobile part that wasn't very good. The weirdest thing about this game is that the final boss is literally <laughs> the Eye of Sauron. Like, you just fight the Eye. <laughs> I love they did that. Did they just give up at the end and have, like, okay, we're done here. Oh, shit, we forgot a boss. Like, I don't understand how that happened. They ran out of money in time, apparently. Okay, <laughs> well, that explains it then. Okay, here's your boss. It doesn't make any sense in the context of the books or the movies, but there you go. You're you're fighting in the Battle of Pelinearth Fields, basically. Yeah. Like the the elephant, the elephants are there and everything. You're part of the charge. At one point, you fight the Witch King for like the third time in this game alongside Eowyn, which again, don't remember any of them showing up during the fight with the Witch King and Eowyn. I seem to recall it was Marion and uh, Eowyn, but whatever. And so you're fighting them. And then you get this cutscene of Minas Tirith. And then you're up on... Uh, Dogledore fighting um, an eye. Fighting an eye. <laughs> or is it Baradur? Just, Whatever. Uh, just poking it with sticks. Uh, you're on Baradur fighting uh, the eye for reasons. For, for reasons, because we ran out of money. There's your reason. Yeah. We need a final boss. Who could be the final <laughs> boss? Uh, Sauron. Okay, uh, how that does tracks. that work? Uh, you fight the eye. He's a big eye. He I does mean, big party killing attacks. I guess technically you're just fighting. Basically, you'd be fight, like fighting an open doorway. Like if you want to put the fight in realistic context, because what are you hitting? You're hitting a portal, I suppose. I think it's kind of sketchy because the eye was kind of a thing that Peter Jackson came up with, like the literal burning eye on the top of the tower. Right. Oh, okay. So that wasn't really much to do with the books. Yeah, I don't think that was really a thing in the books. It was just the his sigil, right? Right. If Which he appeared sense. in a vision, it was going to be an eye. It was going to be a burning eye. Yeah. But it's not yeah. literally an eye. No, in the book itself, how was he described if he was kind of in between worlds? Like, how did that work? How was he described? Admittedly, my memory is pretty hazy on this front. I am rereading the book right now. I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm about 150 pages in and there's still at the Barrowites. So, of course. Yeah, because this game or this book takes its time, but Tom Bombadil is 
However, my recollection is that Sauron is actually a person. It's just he's been depowered somewhat. But he is actually on top of the tower, maybe. Okay. Yeah. He's just hanging there. As he's a, just hanging like... there. But he can see. He has far sight and everything. But he's not like a World War II searchlight going over Mordor. <laughs> it is a cool visual flourish. I'm not going to deny that. It looks cool. Yeah. It actually reminds me a lot. And I don't know if the, he was inspired by this, but the Eye of Flag in, in the stand was a lot like that. Oh, kind that of. was Stephen King 1000% just straight up okay. lifting from Lord of the Rings, which at the time okay. was kind of obscure in many ways. So he's like, yeah, yeah I grew up reading Lord of the Rings. I'm just going to dump it into my book. Uh, uh, he had the eye before the movie, though. Because oh, yeah. The movie yeah, didn't have because an eye. Okay. The I think he was doing flag. I think flag shows up for the first time in the third book, and that was in the early nineties. Yeah, I'm I'm having a hard time remembering my my Stephen King lore because I know he showed up in several books. He showed up in Eye to the Dragon, which was fantastic. And Flag uh, might have shown up as early as book two, but I'm pretty sure it was book three that he arrived. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there book you three go. was the early nineties. So there you go. I really enjoyed yeah. the Dark Tower, by the way. You should go read it if you haven't read it. It's a great I have it's not a great read series. Dark Tower. You've I have never not read, read it? Dark Tower. No, believe it or not. Oh, Nadia. It's so you. It is so I know you. it's so me, and he's retconned all his universe stuff into the freaking Dark Tower, so I should probably get my ass in gear. Book five is where it falls apart a bit, because that was you can trace Stephen King's entire career through the Dark Tower books. Because yes. the first one was when he was just getting started, Circa Carrie. Book two was during his 80s heyday, and the style is very much in that. Book yeah. three was like early 90s, same with book four. Then he took a long break. He got hit by the van. Right. And then he did books five, six, and seven. Right. Honestly, you should read Eyes of the Dragon because it is kind of a, uh, a oh, splinter They directly that. reference Eyes of the Dragon yeah. in Dark Tower. Yeah, it's one of my favorite fantasy books of all time. I like getting completely derailed to talk about the Dark Tower, by the way. But that's okay. It's a good blood god energy. Maybe we should I do so. a Dark Tower, Summer of Dark Tower. That'd be great. Are there Dark Tower games? Oh, there's no games, unfortunately, right. or perhaps fortunately. Um, <laughs> there is a lot of ancillary material, though, including comics and whatnot. So. Yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to read the comics, at least. So Steve Gray told GameSpot in a 2004 interview, it's a delicate balance. You're playing as player-created characters who need to find their way through Middle-earth and participate in the story in interesting and meaningful ways, building and experiencing a story wrapped around the thrilling events of the New Line Cinema films. I love that he said that. Yeah. You travel on a sort of S-curve that weaves in and out of the path of the fellowship through the story of the trilogy. At times, you'll be behind or next to them. At other times, you'll be in the same time and place as members of the fellowship. One of the things that was tricky for them, by the way, was that... So there's a rights issue, okay? So Vivendi mm. had the rights to the books. Oh. However, EA had the rights to the movies. But in having the rights to the movies, you had to stay very specific to everything that is portrayed in the movies. Whereas right. like Lord of the Rings Online had the rights to the books, therefore they were based strictly on the token stuff. They couldn't even allude to what mm. Peter Jackson was doing. So, Hence why the uh, game we're talking about had a giant burning eye as its final boss. <laughs> so, I mean, you only had so much material through these three movies, for heaven's sake. No, absolutely. And it actually reminds me of in 1984, I think it was, there's a really terrible old Famicom Transformers game 
where one of the bosses was literally the Decepticon symbol. Like that was the boss. He shot a Decepticon symbol. <laughs> I mean, that's not that far removed from it. Let's be no. honest. No, exactly. It's hilarious. The cutscenes. So yeah, you mentioned this in the notes, Nadia. The cutscenes are literal clips from the movies that yes. have been spliced in <laughs> along with in engine cutscenes. It's great. It actually it's hilarious because I'm thinking about how in the 90s when CD games first came out, like, wow, this this game actually has Power Rangers footage in it. That's so cool. It's like a little tiny screen, but who cares? Now it's like, wow, you're seriously doing this for a cutscene, huh? That's a that's a choice you made. That was straight up what it was in 2004. Like, I'm sure that there was a wow, actual footage from the movie kind of energy going on there. I mean, it was only the PS2 era. People were still kind of impressed by that. I guess you're right. It was, you know, still quite new-ish. Yeah. So they had actual footage. They had actual voiceovers. I think they had Sir Ian McKellen actually doing the voices of Gandalf because Sir sounded like him. But the game really starts to fall apart after right around the Mines of Moria, where it just kind of starts jumping around. It loses the thread of anything resembling an original plot. And it just starts directly tracing the events of the movies. Like, oh, now you're at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Now you're in Minas Tirith. Now you're at Palinor Fields. Now you're fighting Sauron. Ah, here comes the Witch King. Oh, by the way, the Witch King takes forever to kill and has very long cutscenes and is a kind of a bore. Uh, So it's like the Balrog, only worse. Yes, uh, the game just seemingly runs out of money um, at the end of the day. But (laughs) so when you look back on it, it's like it was not a good RPG in the long run, but it was close. You know, yeah, it would have been kind of cool to have a straight up Final Fantasy X clone set in the uh, world of Lord of the Rings if it didn't just straight up follow the events of the movies. You know, if they had actually had some freedom to be able to get out, get away from the license. I'm pretty sure that this was the reason that they had this story was because they had they could only use what was in the movie. So they were like, well, I guess they're following the fellowship or something. I don't know. Yeah, see, I didn't know that about the differences between the rights, and I do feel like maybe they were chained to that particular depiction of Lord of the Rings and made it harder to break away and say, hey, yeah, okay, this game is all about mooks, but let's follow them somewhere far away from the actual Fellowship. They couldn't do that because they had to keep the Fellowship in the player's view. Yeah, they had to keep the Fellowship in the player's view, and they couldn't get away from any of the locations that were Mm -hmm. shown in the... I mean, I guess they could have crafted their own story around those particular locations. But even then, I'm sure that they had very limited freedom. So why fight against it, right? Exactly. No, they just... They did the best with what they could by the sounds of it. And honestly, fighting the Witch King of Angmar in a turn-based Final Fantasy-style battle is pretty wicked. That does sound pretty cool on paper. I just think it's unfortunate by the sounds of it. their idea of making a challenging boss is making it a bullet sponge. But there's also a lot of ancillary material, but it wasn't directly in the game. You had to kind of find the lore and then be right. able to read about it. And that's how you actually learned about a lot of the characters too, because frankly, the characters were not very well developed in this game. I The closest that you really had to actual character development was that the uh, main character, our pal, was it Bellathor? Is that his name? <laughs> Something like that. He looks very meat shieldy. The Gondorian warrior, basically. Yeah, he was shield. a coward once and ran away from battle, and he vows never to do it again. Oh, that sounds exciting! Great, yeah, great, great dude. A plus plus plus. <laughs> and you know, and 
they all have ties in one way or another to the actual movies and uh, the events of the movies. So when they're introducing party members, it's mostly because they need to move the story forward and they need to be able to connect. So uh, here's our Rohirrim character. Here they here they're here for reasons. <laughs> they're making an appearance because of uh, you know they want to. The actual battle system isn't too bad. Uh, it's relatively balanced. It has uh, your, you know, your typical RPG stuff. You know, you can charge up your, you can pick menu commands to charge up your character. You have various spells. There's a healer character, that kind of thing. The magic isn't too overblown, which is in keeping with token. And when you yes. actually see the combat happening, it looks good. You know, it feels in line with Lord of the Rings. So from a strictly superficial point of view, you're like, oh, this is great. Yeah, it occurs to me that the magic users in Lord of the Rings, for the most part, are not very showy. Even Gandalf really reserved his full strength and used it very, very sparingly. So what did you see? Again, you can use that depiction of the horses running through the water. Like, that's one spell. Beyond that, it's just like, uh, I don't know, horses again. Admittedly, in the Hobbit trilogy, you had that explosion of power at the end of the original hobbit yes and he shows up to uh when he shows up in goblin town which, yeah yeah as an, an addendum to our hobbit trilogy episode i didn't remember realize that the goblin town song came from the rankin bass original oh, movie no i didn't oh no i should have said something about that i love that song and i can't I was believe saying... he freaking lifted the goblin town song <laughs> from the rankin boss movie and did it worse that's well, yeah, is not is not as good. I think actually in the original theatrical release, it wasn't even there. It was in probably the extended version, and it was put back into the fan version that we watched. So there was justice for Goblin Town in the end. Justice for Goblin Town, but uh, there it didn't have. So it did have random encounters basically, but it handled it in kind of the Etrian Odyssey style, where you had a palantir telling you course it was a palantir telling you whether or not enemies are going to be nearby so yeah and that's also a very shin megami tensei by the by the sounds of it yeah i mean so the actual set pieces looked pretty cool looked very much in line with the movies you would have like the the uh orcs up in uh the ruins shooting arrows at you and everything uh the music was very much in line with lord of the rings so if you wanted to get those lord of the rings feels you could enjoy the third age yeah, by the sounds of it, it was a good game for hardcore movie fans who maybe wanted a little bit of extra lore in their in their diet. It would have been nice if it had actual characters instead of just off-brand versions of the actual characters who had actual development. I think so. I think maybe it would have been a different game if they hadn't been constrained to the movie license. But I think we're asking too much of this game, this <laughs> license game that came out in 2004, a year after the movies. Yeah, by then, I guess everything had, everything had wrapped up. I'm surprised that it actually sold as well as it did. I think it moved a million copies, at least. I mean, it had the EA marketing machine behind it, and people still really enjoyed Lord of the Rings. You know, I did. I was paying attention to it at that time. I wanted to play it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But that was kind of the last hurrah for Lord of the Rings. I don't think that after 2004, it kind of went into hibernation a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Of course, you have other media franchises that are coming by. Marvel was on the doorstep, so that was starting off sooner or later. And yeah, until The Hobbit, it just died down for a bit. Though, I mean, it still continued to have an outsized impact on the look and feel of fantasy. I mean, we were just talking oh, about Dragon Age. 
earlier yeah. this episode. They swear up and down that they were not influenced by Lord of the Rings at all. And oh, they come were trying on. to make their own dark fantasy. And it's like, oh, come on. Uh, okay. So, oh, we're not actually, we're not actually Lord of the Rings. We're actually Bethesda. Get it right. The actual present, the actual flourishes, the presentational flourishes, especially when you're fighting the dark spawn in Dragon Age Origins. So Lord of the Rings down no, to no, the musical flourishes. And they were like, no, no, we were doing dark fantasy. And we were a real pioneer in that regard. It's like, okay, guys. Come on, guys. Okay. <laughs> Come on, be good about this. Don't don't piss on people's heads and tell them it's raining. Don't do that. There was also um, Twilight Princess was extremely influenced by Lord of the Rings. It's look. Oh, yeah. Down to the, the bridge thing. The bridge thing. The there bridge was a, duel. There was a monster that looked like a Balrog, like, practically, yeah. like, bit for bit. And just the more darker... Uh, almost like a kind of a dark pall over everything that really reminded me of uh, Lord of the Rings as well. And the trailer was saying things like shields will shatter. It's yeah, very yeah. Lord of the Rings. That trailer, oh my god, that legendary trailer, absolutely. And Miyamoto coming out of the smoke, wielding the, yeah. the Master Sword. Ugh. That was pretty cool. If <laughs> you were a certain cool. age, hell yeah. <laughs> You had to be there to understand. You had to be there, everybody. You had to download that trailer from IGN.com and watch it in your college dorm room and then almost start crying. You're so excited. <laughs> start crying over what was it, like 300 by 300 pixel video. Oh, Radiant it looked hell. amazing. It looked amazing. It did. Nadia. All right. Well, the legacy reception it was generally seen as an okay RPG. It was a very 7 out of 10 kind of rpg yeah. that's what it got from Eurogamer. it was probably the best received lord of the ring games until 20 uh, until middle earth shadow of war shadow of mordor came out in 2014 nadia but oops oh no i'm fine oh no you missed out uh <laughs> lord of the rings games in general are kind of bad because they miss out on the the feel of the books they try to right. they try to do the movies but darker and edgier and instead end up being kind of obnoxious yeah yeah no I don't need that. I'm okay with having a more lighthearted Lord of the Rings someday. I, I feel like everybody was like, yeah, this is all right, but it's generally kind of met with a shrug. And mm -hmm. the Eurogamer, I thought the Eurogamer review was very on point the way that it was describing it, which is to say, yeah, it's like Final Fantasy X, but not as deep. The thing is, on the PlayStation 2, you had your choice of a million billion great RPGs, and this was there? That was the thing, is that... You didn't have nearly as many build options because in final it I don't think that Lord of the Rings Third Age, at least to my recollection, had anything resembling the sphere grid. Because in Final mm, Fantasy X, no. you could move down the sphere grid and eventually you could start kind of doing your own builds, your own hybrid builds and everything. It would take a lot of grinding, but you could actually pull it off and you could come up with some pretty broken builds ultimately <laughs> that were a lot of fun. And that was how you were fighting endgame style bosses. And you could power up your character a lot, but it was much more of a just straight up grinding, like just build them up and get more magic spells and then go to it. So it's just maybe not as interesting, maybe not as much flexibility and customization. Well, on the plus side, if you were a Lord of the Rings fan back in that day, um, it wouldn't poison you. It was a pretty <laughs> serviceable, God, I pretty hope serviceable not. RPG by the sounds of it. Man, they really milked that material as much as they could down to the making Grimma Wormtongue a boss. That's the funniest thing to me. Like I said, just like you beat that guy up outside of the school in the schoolyard. Just boom, boom, boom. He gets lunch money and run. 
Well, Nadia, when we do a Pantheon episode, this is usually the time where we go to the community and we go, what do you think? Should this be in the Pantheon? We have a long discussion about it, long argument. Some say, I mean, with the Fantasy Star one, like it was me versus you and Shane, like practically coming to blows over it. Yes. But uh, I don't, I mean, obviously there's no debate that Lord of the Rings Third Age should deserves to be in the Pantheon or, a, or in really anywhere near the Pantheon. But as weird historical curiosities that have a tangential connection to Square, like I love uh, the Steve Gray origin story yeah. here and the origin story of this game in general. It's just a, one of those quirky moments in RPG history and a great way to wrap up the Summer of the Rings. I think so. It's definitely a product of its time. It's the kind of RPG, the kind of game that you would get back in the day. And it wasn't great by any means, but it was certainly had an interesting history behind it. it had a, it was a nice little quirk for uh, lore people to, del- to delve into. Yeah, and it was such a product of its time in the yeah. terms of like the the licensed games of that particular era. And you know, ten years later, the landscape would be totally different. EA would be totally different. It would. Yeah, hard to believe what you got till it's gone, as they say. Yeah, I mean, it would start changing as soon as the uh, Xbox 360 came out the year after. All right, that is our Pantheon Mini for The Lord of the Rings, The Third Age, and the end of the Summer of the Rings. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing that project. We'll do something similar to it again at some point. I think so. In the meantime, I encourage you to go look and listen to our previous episodes on this run. In the meantime, that's a wrap for us. Thank you so much for listening to the most recent episode of Axe of the Blood God. If you enjoy the show, please go ahead and leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And please subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. I will not be here next week. Nadia is going to be in charge to weave her own particular brand of chaos. So please look forward to that. But until then, for Nadia myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. The gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil.